0: As G.K. Chesterton said, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Here on Swimming Upstream, we go against the cultural stream by championing life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Your host is Eric Salmons, author of seven books, including Holiness for Everyone, The Old Evangelization, and Bitcoin Basics. Now let's get swimming. Welcome to episode 93 of Swimming Upstream. I'm Eric Sammons. Well, today I thought what I'd do is I'd share a recording of a class I taught in my, uh, a catechism class I taught at my parish recently, and the topic was the church. And really, it was that broad. It was just the church. And so I covered a number of things in the class, like what is the church. Uh, I talked about it being the mystical body of Christ and what that meant. I talked about the four marks of the church talked about how it's a communion of saints, talked about the structure of the church. I also talked about the controversial uh, statement Outside the church, there is no salvation, and I, that was a, a good discussion, I thought, during that time. So I hope you enjoy it. I know at one point there was a, a couple points there was a, a kid crying. You know, as a father of seven. that doesn't really bother me, but hopefully the sound uh, won't be too bad that you'll be able to hear me okay over, over the crying child. They did, of course, take the child out after a while, and that's okay. I, I'm glad that uh, somebody was able to come with their kid. There's no problem with that. But anyway, I hope you uh, enjoy this and uh, learn something today. Let's start with a prayer. In the prayer. Name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Philip Neri. Blessed John Henry Newman. And Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, hopefully, very soon we won't be praying to Blessed John Henry Newman anymore. Be praying to Saint John Henry Newman, he had a. did in here, he had his second miracle uh, attributed to him. Was approved by the Vatican last week, which means basically all it's left. I think is the paperwork, and he should be uh, canonized a saint. I'm hoping it'll, it'll happen in October at his feast day, but we'll see. So, okay. So tonight the topic is the church, and so just to take a quick um, step back, in this book, the whole first section of the book is apologetics, and in the second section is Catholic doctrine. So the apologetics, of course, is trying to explain much of it through reason alone, but even uh, somewhat from Revelation, explain our faith to those who don't believe, whereas Catholic doctrine is more... We're, we're teaching to those of us who do believe, and just making sure we really understand it more in depth. So, the reason I bring that up is because we already talked about the Church, I mean, I, I, don't, I can't remember now who taught the classes, in the apologetics section. So some of the things about the Church I'm not that were covered under apologetics, I'm not going to cover tonight. We're going to be more focused on just the, uh, the, the Catholic doctrine of the Church and in the in the book it, it it does a great job in this book at the beginning of each chapter. It kind of says what is the solemn teaching of the church uh, yeah of the church about the topic at hand, so it does that here, what is the teaching of the church um, uh, what does the church teach about what it is I mean, what is the church? It has fifteen different points which it's on page four twenty six i'm not going to read them here, but we'll try to cover at least most of those tonight now, as far as what the church is. The the term itself and what it means, actually there's competing visions of it between Catholics and Protestants. This is one of the fundamental differences between us, is what is the church? Because I know when I was a Protestant and Protestants today, we, we talked a lot about the church, but really the idea was very nebulous. It was essentially anybody who believed in Jesus, who followed Jesus, was a member of the church. They didn't have to do anything other than that, than to say... I'm a follower of Jesus. Okay, you're a member of the church. And it was also, though, a lot of times you had this nebulous idea that, well, if they weren't very good members of the church, let's say they were sinners or something like that, you know, terrible sinners, whatever, then they weren't really part of the church. And so there's almost this kind of Gnostic idea of certain people were in, certain people weren't. And, you know, if you were really following Christ and you're a member of the church, and if you weren't following uh, Christ, even if you kind of, claim to be a Christian, you weren't really a member of the church. But of course, for Catholics, that's not what, how we define the church. For the Catholics, the church is a visible body of the baptized, which is led by the hierarchy, and which, is, and which offers the sacraments. And so, if you notice, all three of those points I made, a visible body of the baptized, led by the hierarchy, offering physical sacraments, all three of those things, the the bo- visible body, the hierarchy, and the physical sacraments—they're all visible things. They're not invisible. You know who you, we know who the members of the hierarchy are. We know we can know who the baptized are, and we know what the sac- we can see the sacraments. And so, all these things are visible. Now, one of the most common names given to the church—the church has a lot of different names given to it—but one of the most common names is the mystical body of Christ. This is a pretty classic name given to the church. Now, of course, body of Christ, calling the church body of Christ comes from Scripture, of course, and but traditionally, over time, it came to be called the mystical body of Christ. Some of that was simply to distinguish it from the Eucharist, because, of course, the Eucharist, communion, is the body of Christ, but that's not what we're talking about. There's a, there's a de- definite connection between the Eucharist and the church, but they're not identical. And so let me just go through each of these parts. The first one is, look at the body. Now, what is a body? A body is visible. And so I bring that up again because it's very important. The body, there is no such thing. I mean, it's funny because St. Paul is insistent on calling the, the church the body of Christ. So how can it be invisible? I mean, are we the invisible man or something? I mean, it's like the, the body is visible. Everybody is visible. It's a physical thing. And so that's the first thing, though, is by calling it the physical body of Christ, we're saying it's visible. It's something we can see. We know who are... We know... If we look up parish records, we know who are members of the church. We know who leads the church. You know, we know who's in charge. Uh, the bishops, the pope, the priests, the sacraments, like I say we can see. So it's... It's It's a... Visible. The second part of a body... So it's visible. The second part of a body is... That it's united. Try to imagine a body where the foot didn't do what the what the brain wanted to, or the foot went against the hand, or or you know the, the eyes did something different from the knee and all these things. And you know, if your body was battling itself, it wouldn't really be a body. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Anything that's a unified body, that is one body, it's unified. And so that's the other part of it, is that the the, the church is the united, it's united. And that, that really distinguishes the Catholic Church from the, all the Protestant denominations. you probably heard you know, there's tens of thousands, they, they, one count was 33,000 Protestant denominations in the world. Because when you don't like what's going on in your, in your church, you just go and form a new one down the street. And so they have all these denominations. They're not united. And so, although I know it doesn't always feel like we're united as Catholics the fact is we are actually united because we're united not because we all get along or we agree but we're united because we all have the same mother which is the church and that's another term for it, of course, we're all united in Christ and so just like in your family in your, in your um, biological family that you're a member of you're always going to be a member of that family no matter what how, um, how much you fight with your relatives, you are still united in one family. You may hate each other but you're still you 're still one family you can 't stop that, and that 's the same thing here where we 're you know the family of God is another term for the church, and so we are a family we 're we're, we're united whether we like it or not we 're brothers and sisters and you see that, that terminology used in the scriptures of calling uh, fellow Christians brothers and sisters and you see that, that language of family all throughout of course the church because what do you call the priest father so and so we call you know sister Marie Cecile, you know brother Henry We have these terms because it identifies us as a family, a family of God. We're united. A family is united in blood, and the, the, the Catholic Church is the family united in blood, but the blood of Christ. That's the, and we all obviously receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. That's how we're all united as a family. So that's the first point. The mystical body of Christ is it's a that's invisible and united. The, the second part is of Christ is obviously a very important part of this because number one... You know, he is the founder of the church. I know that's pretty obvious, but it's important to remember that he is the founder of, uh, of the Catholic church. It's always hilarious. There was a, uh, you guys might have seen this before, but years ago, I mean, you guys heard of um, Dear Abby. I don't think she's around anymore, but, and she was this uh, non-practicing Jew who wrote an advice column um, to... In newspapers, I'm trying to explain all this for the people who might not have ever heard of Deer Abbey, who are too young to actually know what it may be more a newspaper is. Uh, it's, it's, like a, it's like a blog on paper, so anyway, um, but she would answer questions, and somebody was asking something about like who founded uh, the Catholic Church, something like that, or, or the churches, whatever. And she had this list of who founded all these Protestant denominations. So she, like, Martin Luther founded the Lutherans in, in 1517. King Henry the, the, uh, eighth founded the uh, Anglican Church in 1533 or whatever. John Calvin founded the Presbyterian Church. And then she said, Jesus Christ founded the Catholic Church in 33. And I just thought it was hilarious that this secular Jew, you know, she's listing all the founders, and she, got, she nailed it absolutely right. I am sure she got many letters uh, for that one uh, that wasn't quite as happy. But the fact is, Jesus Christ founded, he didn't just found the church, he didn't just found uh, Christianity, he founded the Catholic Church. We date our founding all the way to Jesus Christ himself not to some human late, who later came, some human being who later came and started up uh, you know, the Catholic denomination, for example. There is no such thing as a Catholic denomination. We are, it is the church. The other point about the, uh, you know, the mystical body of Christ the Church is, is the identity, the church is identified with Christ. And this is a, a, a kind of a, um, like a mystical, I'm word mystical in a minute, a mystical sense. But think about when St. Paul before he was St. Paul when he was Saul and he was persecuting the Christians on the road to Damascus, he sees the bright light and he hears a voice. What does the, what does the voice say? Does anybody know exactly what the voice says? Saul. 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 Why are you yes, Saul, Saul why are you persecuting who? Me. me. He didn't say why are you persecuting my followers? He didn't even say why are you persecuting the church? He said why are you persecuting me? And of course Saul wasn't going around. He wasn't trying to find the the, the body of Jesus, which he wouldn't, of course, have been able to find. And like hitting it or anything like that, he was persecuting Christians. He was persecuting followers of Christ. He was persecuting members of the church. So he's persecuting the church, which to Jesus Christ meant he is persecuting him. He's persecut- You know, he said, "Why are you persecuting me?" And so, when we say it's the body of Christ, it, it's identified with Christ. We are a, a true part of. When you are part of the church you are you are a part of Jesus Christ Saint Paul says, uh, it "Is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and so the, the term Christian you know can mean follow Christ, but really in a way it's it means like little christ it's it's another Christ and of course, the priest is is the uh, another Christ in, in, a, in a special sacramental way, but in another sense, every single one of us is a member of the church As soon as you're baptized, you become another Christ and so that's an important point is that the church is identified with Jesus himself. And then the last word is probably the most, you know, kind of confusing, and that's the, it's called the mystical body of Christ. And what does that mean? There are, the book lays this out pretty good. There's different types of bodies that you can have. Obviously, you have a physical body, and that, the physical body of Christ, the church isn't the physical body of Christ, because that is the the body that uh, was born in Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, who you know grew up, died, was crucified, and is, was then resurrected and now glorified in heaven. That's the physical body of Christ. There's also, of course, the Eucharistic body of Christ, which is what we receive in Holy Communion. So it's not that the church isn't the Eucharistic body of Christ. It's the mystical body of Christ. And what that means is, you know, it talked about in the book, it, it mentioned that, of course, there's the physical, there's the mystical, but there's also something called, just in normal usage, something you call a moral body. And so it's, it's like, so the moral body, it's not just a moral body, I'll, I'll say like it's a moral body plus, we'll say. A moral body is just a group of people who are united in a cause. So for example, like, I don't know, the, the Elks Club, for example, or Kiwanis Club, or something like that. Some, some group of people who get together, the, a political party is a moral body. So the Republican or the Democrat party they are moral bodies, meaning it's a group of people who voluntarily decide to get together for some purpose, and they have general agreement on what their purpose is, and if they don't, they leave it. And so in a sense, and people look at the church like that, I mean, I just saw today where some lady was, some, I don't know, she was a reporter or something, uh, talking about how the Catholic church has to basically go away because it's this terrible misogynist and Everything else awful, and so it just needs to disappear because they see it. This person sees the church as just another moral body. Yeah, the Elks Club can go away. The you know the Republican Party can go away. The you know all these different moral bodies, just groupings of people, they can all go away. And so if, the, if that's all the church is, it could go away as well. But it's more than that. It's like a, like I said, it's like a moral body plus. It's mystical, and I think the way that the book describes it is very good because it says. It's a it's, So, it's as in moral bodies, the members of the church share a common purpose, means, and authority. So, you know, that's what all moral bodies, you know, they have a leadership, they have a purpose, they have a way of doing that, of, of getting, uh, achieving their purpose. But in addition, the church is a body by virtue of a supernatural internal principle, the Holy Spirit, really existing and operative in the whole structure and in each one of its parts, the source of her unity, filling and unifying the whole church. So it's the Holy Spirit, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, which, of course, really is what makes it more than just a moral body, because it's something supernatural now. It's no longer a natural body. And it's, in fact, the only supernatural body in existence. You know, Every other community of people is just a, a, a moral body, meaning it has no supernatural principle underneath it, whereas the church has that. And so the Holy Spirit is really what makes it mystical. and makes it so much more than just another, just another body. And a lot often the Holy Spirit is called the soul of the church. You know, so if the, you know, the church is a body, and uh, you know our bodies have souls, well, what without a soul, what would our body be? Dead, right? Yeah, it'd be dead. It, it animates the body. The, holy, the, the, the soul does. I'm, yeah, the soul does. Likewise. What animates the, the, the body of the church is the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, the body would die. It needs the Holy Spirit, and it has it. And that's why we date the birthday of the church is Pentecost, right? Which is when the Holy Spirit came down. That's why, because before the Holy Spirit came down, there could be no church without the Holy Spirit. And So that's why we date it to the, 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 the uh, date of Pentecost. So that's why we use these, the mystical body of Christ that's kind of breaking down that term and why it, well, how it represents what the church is. Okay, any questions on that, on mystical body Christ? Okay, moving along. Now. now, I'm not going to go over the next part too much in depth, because I think we've already talked about it once, but I just want to make sure to emphasize the point. Traditionally, the church has always been identified with four marks, and of course we say them every Sunday, it's the one holy Catholic apostolic church. And these are the four marks of the church, and a mark, of course, is just what distinguishes it from uh, other, you know, from something else, is what makes it unique, and so it's, these are the marks, what distinguish, the distinguishing characteristics of the church. And it's always interesting. I always kind of wondered, yeah. it, 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 obviously as the Holy Spirit leading it, how these four came up. Because these four marks aren't listed in the Scriptures, for example. It's just they, you know tradition they came up with the Creed and eventually they, it's like these are the four marks that really distinguish the Church uh, from any other body. So we've already talked about you know, the fact that it's one. It is united in purpose. Now, I think we all would agree that it doesn't always feel like one. In fact, we'll see this on a couple of these. You know, we, we often feel divided we feel because there's a lot of infighting in the church. But again, it's like I was saying with the family, we still are united by the blood of Christ. And also, we have, and so we're also united in, our, in the teaching of the church in the sense that uh, we, we have one doctrine of faith that we believe, and we have one leadership. There's only one pope of the church. And so, that's, and so even though, you know, maybe some dude in Kansas in his mom's basement calls himself Pope Michael, there's actually there's a guy who does that, by the way. I didn't make that up. Um, what's that? Yeah, 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 I think it's Kansas. It might be Colorado. Yeah, it's somewhere out there, Midwest. Um, and so that doesn't, you know, we only have one leader. We only have one set of bishops who are united to one pope. And so we're united in leadership. We're united in teaching, we're united in leadership. We're also united in sacraments. That it's that hierarchy in the the priesthood that offers these sacraments. I can't all of a sudden give you all communion. You know, that would be breaking away from that. And so that's why, you know, because we're one, that's why, I mean, really the, the, the mark of one is why the church has always been against both heresy and schism. Because heresy, of course, goes against the one teaching of the church, the united teaching church, and schism goes against the one leadership of the church. And so, that's why the church has always fought against those two sins, because they're both sins against the oneness of the church. The church is holy, and of course, this doesn't mean every single member is holy. Every single member is a canonized saint, for example. But what it does mean is that the church is, number one, the means of holiness. The way you get holy is through grace, and the best way to receive grace is in the sacraments. And The only way you receive the sacraments is in the church. And so... Holiness, the church is holy because it offers the means of holiness. And of course we see, in it, and its teaching is also holy. In the sense if you look at the teaching of the church, it is the means for holiness. By following the teachings of the church, that's how you become holy. So the church is also holy. The church is Catholic, and the word Catholic means universal. And the most common way this is seen is that it's universal in that all peoples are uh, able to be, are are invited to become Catholic, to to enter into the church. And so, the term universal means that, but it also means more than that. It also, universal means that it's the fullness of teaching, that all the teachings that are necessary for salvation are found in in the Catholic Church. So, even if there were only five members of the church left. If there was some great persecution, only five members of the whole, in, in the whole world, five people in the whole world were, were Catholic, it would still be a universal church because they would have the, the universality of all teaching. And of course, universality in the sense that everybody's invited, remember, that's a distinguishing factor from Judaism because if you remember, you know, Judaism, it wasn't, it didn't like go out to the whole world. It saw itself, and this was what God wanted it to do until the time of Christ, it's all itself as we will, will maintain the faith, our belief in one God, and then what will happen, and, and the nations will just basically see us as that city on the hill. Whereas now, and with the advent of Christ, we go out and we want everybody to join the church. And then the, the final one is apostolic. And what this means is that we are connected to the teachings of the apostles. Jesus Christ revealed everything... And he was the fullest of revelation that he gave to the apostles. After the, and the apostles then preached the fullness of the Catholic faith. And after the last apostle died, which is believed to be John the Apostle, died probably in the 90s, AD, somewhere around there, then there was no more public revelation. Nothing new was to be taught after the death of the last apostle. That's one meaning of apostolic, is that we hold on to those teachings. Also, the, another meaning is, is that our bishops, of course, are the successors to the apostles. You can trace back the, the uh, one bishop back to the next one, next one all the way back, previous one all the way back to the time of the apostles. So we actually have the apostles in a sense still in our midst in the bishops and the pope. In fact, in the early church, there's a, there's a church father named Ir, Bishop St. Irenaeus. He was a bishop in, in uh, what is now France, in the late 2nd century, and he battled this heresy called Gnosticism. And a big part of this, the the, the Gnostics were basically kind of like the the, the pseudo-Protestants of the day. They used scripture, and they used the Christian teaching, but they warped it, much worse than Protestants do today. They warped it, though, in this kind of wacky way, and they said, we're the real Christians, we're the real ones who follow, follow Jesus, and of course, then now, now so Irenaeus, who's a Catholic bishop, is like, okay, I need to convince people why we're right and they're wrong. Because we're both saying we follow Scripture. We're both saying that we, are, uh, that, that we follow the teachings of Jesus. But which one of us is right? And what he does is, in one of his books called Against Heresies, he has this whole uh, section where he talks about, okay, we believe what the Scriptures teach. Well, they say that too. We believe, we have the tradition that goes back to the time of Christ. Well, they say they do as well. So how do we distinguish? And what he does is his trump card is, we have the bishops that trace back to the time of the apostles. And we can recount our bishops, because this was written in like like 170 AD, 180, something like that. He says we can recount all the way back. So we have that direct line to the apostles. That's how we know our interpretation of Scripture is correct, our tradition is correct, is because we have the apostles. And he actually uses this as an example. He's like, I'm not going to tell every bishop's you know, succession back to an apostle, but so what I'll do is I'll tell the one that matters the most, which is, of course, the bishop of Rome. And then he goes back and he says, okay, the bishop of Rome right now is this guy, and then before him was this guy, and he goes all the way back to Peter. And that's actually one of the main sources why we know the early bishops, where we get that list from is from him. But the point was is that the church is apostolic. It can, it's connected directly to the apostles, uh, and so that's, why, that's another distinguishing mark. So that's the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Okay, any questions on that? I think we covered that a little bit last semester, but... It's important enough to go over again, I figured I'm doing somewhat of a like scattershot, hitting all the major points uh, one at a time from, from the chapter about the church. So the next one is that the church is the communion of saints. And so, if you look in the scriptures, St. Paul talks about, he calls fellow Christians, his fellow Christians, saints. And so you, know, so, you know, we could, if we wanted to, we could call each other saints. Now, of course, the term has, grown, has developed a little bit, and now we, when we th- hear, when Catholics hear the word saints, we think of capital S saints, which means canonized saints, people who've actually already passed away and were canonized by the church. But the truth is, the church is made up of the communion of saints, and a saint in the, in the more generic sense is, is basically synonymous with the Christian, Somebody who, it's the holy ones, and the reason we're holy is not through our own uh, worth, but because we're baptized. We're baptized in Jesus Christ, and that's what makes us saints. So as soon as you're baptized, you are a saint. And then it's just a matter of trying to live up to that sainthood so that one day you could even be canonized. But the communion of saints is the church, but it's broken into three different groups. There's three different groups of saints there's the Church Militant, is the first one, and that's us. That's the Church here on Earth. Anybody who is a baptized Catholic, a baptized person, is a member of the Church Militant. Now, it's interesting because the um, there's some debate. Like, what what about somebody who's like a heretic, or somebody who is excommunicated, or leaves the Church, or anything like that, or is in schism. Are they still a member of the church? Well, I mean, the answer is yes. Technically, they are. If you're baptized, you are a member of the church, and you, there's nothing you can do to renounce that. I mean, you can say, "I renounce that," and but you're still a member of the church, Milton, here on earth. Now, when you die, you may not uh, may no longer be a member of the church because there is no church something in hell. So you would you'd have a problem there. But while you're here on earth, as long as you're baptized you are a member of the church. You might be a a terrible member of the church. You might be a a very sinful member, but you're still a member of the church. So that's the church. And of course, the term militant is is, militaristic. It's it's, we're fighting. Because the point is, as soon as we're baptized, we join an army, and we're fighting trying to, uh, we're fighting the forces of darkness for God, and we're fighting ourselves, which is one of the biggest forces of darkness, is our own sinful flesh and things like that. And so we're, we're in a fight. There's no guarantee if we're going to win or lose, each of us individually. The church itself will win, but we ourselves, we're not guaranteed victory yet until, until we die in the state of grace. So the, the second part of the communion of saints is the church suffering. These are the souls who are in purgatory. So they've been members of the church militant. They've won the battle. But they suffered a lot of damage doing it. So they have to go to the infirmary first before they're led into the full, you know, the full uh, glory of heaven. So this is the, the church suffering in purgatory where the souls of those who have been, you know, been saved, they died in a state of grace, but they have attachments still to this world, attachments to sin, things like that. Those need to be purged before they can be in the presence of the all-holy God. And of course, they're in purgatory. But they're still members of the church, just as much as we are. And they're, in one sense, they're better members than us because they've already been uh, saved, but in another sense, they're not because they still need to be, because there's certain things they can't do. Like, they can't pray for us. We pray for them. And then the last one, the last membership is the full membership, so to speak. Um, thank you. I had, a, I had a brain. Yes, the church, church triumphant. And so, of course, these are members in heaven. And these are who are now in the presence of God. Now, what's important for this is, like, today you hear a lot of times, you hear people in the church, you know, typically you're, you're liberal Catholics, who try to advocate for changes in doctrine or practice or teaching. And one of the ways they do is because they have this, first of all, they have this kind of bad idea that church is a democracy, which it's not. But they also kind of make, they, they use some, some church teaching of tradition that, tr- you know, in, in the magisterium, like the, magister, the ordinary magisterium includes all the members of the church, and so basically, if we all kind of agreed that contraception is okay, well then, now contraception is okay, that's the magisterium. That's kind of the argument, which is completely false, first of all, because that's not how it works, but second of all, they're only counting, you know, the, the members right now, probably for them, they're only counting like, you know... Ex hippie boomers or something, but but the point is, it's like the if you think about the entire church, that's every single person who's lived since the time of Christ and died in a state of grace is in heaven. All those people, all the people in purgatory. I tell you what, the people in heaven and purgatory they ain't voting for contraception. So even if it was democracy, democracy, which it's not, you know, we get way outvoted. But more importantly, like this, this idea of the ordinary magisterium is when kind of everybody believes something, then that kind of is what we believe. That is true, but it's, it's, not, it, it's not just a vote of people who are currently alive today. So it includes everybody. Uh, Chesterton, I think it was Chesterton, had the famous quote that tradition is a democracy for the dead. That it gives the, all the people who came before us a vote in how we do things, so to speak. And so that's, that's important to remember that the church includes all of these people. It's not just those who are alive, to, alive on earth today, because, of course, obviously people in purgatory and heaven are alive more than we are in many ways. Okay, so that's another part, point about the church. It's the communion of saints. Okay, now, it was interesting. They brought up in the text a topic, and then they didn't even... Am exp- I, I, I missed it? I mean, I read the chapter, am I missed it? but they didn't really go through it, and I was a little surprised they didn't. And that is a definitive teaching of the church, which is outside the church there is no salvation. And I know there are some here who could probably say it in Latin, and I can't remember it right now, so... So outside the church, there is no salvation. Now, this is a definitive and perennial teaching of the church. It is not, it cannot in any way be uh, overcome, it can't be uh, denied or anything like that. It is a solemn teaching of the church, and outside the church, there is no salvation. This has been taught since the beginning. Now, of course, it's very controversial today because most people outside the church, and maybe some in the church, would read this and immediately say, well, if you're not a Catholic, you're going to hell. Because that's the kind of the plain reading of it, and some people would believe that, but that's what it means. But what a couple things that it means. One thing is, is that uh, I think it was I'm trying to think who was the first to say it, but Saint Cyprian had a great saying where he says he was a saint in the uh, church, father in the second century, I believe it was. I'm sorry, no, no, uh, third century, and he said you can he can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. That in order to follow God, well, before in order to follow Christ you have to be a member of the church and the reason for this is because when Jesus came in one sense he died for the church and he is going he rose the church and he is going to save the church he's not going to save each one of us individually in one sense he's really going to save the church and so if you're a member of the church you get saved a very common analogy is that the church is the ark of salvation just like in Noah's ark if you weren't on the ark you were in trouble you were going to drown Likewise, if you're not in the church, you're gonna drown, you're gonna die. And so you have to be a member of the church. And so at, on that final day of glory, Christ is going to gather up the church and bring it into the make it to New Jerusalem and heaven and all that. It's not like he's picking each one individually. And this is very hard for us American, modern, you know, modern Western Americans to think of it like that. And you know, it's a it, it's a very Protestant view, but it also is, I think, infected all of us. We we kind of think of our relationship with Christ as just me and him a lot, but really it's always as part of a greater body, as part of the church. And so if you're not a member of the church, then you're simply not going to be a uh, you're not going to be saved. Now, what does it mean though to be a member of the church? Well, one thing is, and I, I, he brought up a great point is that uh, that I hadn't thought of it like this. If you're obviously if you're baptized, you're a member of the church, and so a almost all Protestant baptisms are valid. So I was baptized as a Methodist. Well, I was actually baptized Catholic then. I mean, because a baptism is Catholic no matter, no matter where it's performed or who does it. If it's a valid baptism, it's a Catholic baptism. So I was a little Catholic there in my Protestant house until I was around the age of reason or so because it's only after time when you're obviously taught these things and and you start, you know, uh, you you don't really practice the Catholic faith. You don't, you know, receive sacraments, go to Mass, things like that. You're now no longer outwardly a Catholic, but you're still a baptized person. So you're still a member of the Catholic Church. Now you're a member in some, it's like in a, uh, not in a full way and you're you're more, um, you're kind of, inside and outside, so to speak. You're, you are a member of the church, but y- your relationship with the church has been uh, damaged, so to speak. And, but it's also true, like, if you're Catholic, and you're baptized in a Catholic church, you live a Catholic, and then you go into a state of mortal sin, well, you're still a member of the church, but now you've, you've broken communion with the church, and so therefore, if you died in that state of mortal sin, even though you're a member of the church in one sense, you don't get salvation just because you're baptized as a Catholic because you have denied God and you have rejected him. So obviously he's not going to uh, have you, you, you can't be in his presence. So that would be the people. So there's baptism, is the, you know, back, the, the sacramental baptism is the, the, the primary way that you become a member of the church. There, so the back, you know, we'll say, um, there's baptism, sacramental baptism, and in another type of baptism that's always been a part of the tradition of the church is baptism of blood. And this is, of course, the martyrs. If you, were, if you died for Christ, even if you have not been baptized, you are guaranteed automatically going straight to heaven. No purgatory for you. And that has always been the teaching of the church because you've literally gotten rid of all your attachments to the world. You, you have given yourself 100% to God because you've given everything you can give, which is your life. You're a martyr so you go to heaven so for example in the early church this would happen where somebody might be a catechumen and they haven't they haven't been baptized yet but they they die a martyr's death well they're 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 in heaven you know they were saved even though they weren't they didn't receive water baptism yet because they died for um they died for christ so that's that's another type of baptism the third baptism, type of baptism is the, the most, like, probably abused and misused and misunderstood, and that's baptism by desire. Let's say, let's go back to that early church person who's a catechumen. So they haven't been baptized yet, but they've they said, I'm going to enter into the church, I plan on it. so Easter's coming up, I'm going to get baptized. And they don't get martyred, but they die in an accident. I don't know, maybe a chariot runs over him or something, however he died back then. Um, And so what happens to that person? And the church kind of realized, okay, they they weren't sacramentally baptized. They didn't get baptism in blood, but they planned to be sacramentally baptized. They desired union with Christ. They desired to be in the church. The only reason they weren't yet is because simply it hadn't become Easter yet. And so this idea of a baptism by desire, that this person... Would achieve salvation because they were, in a sense, a member of the church by their desire to be a member of the church. And you know, their desire wasn't just like, hey, be cool, or maybe. They were really, they were in the catechumen program. So now you have that that's baptism desire. Now, these two are very clear: sacramental baptism, making you of church, baptism of blood. Baptism desire, though, it's had a long history of like development but also misuse because in the in the 1960s, for example, there was this whole idea of a, the anonymous Christian, that there was all these people in Africa or Asia or wherever, who they were really Christian, even though they weren't, they'd never heard of Jesus, they weren't baptizing like that, because they basically, I don't know, they had the good thoughts about God. They were maybe they were good people, you know, they lived a, a morally upright life, so they were quote unquote anonymous Christians, which by by um, uh, implicit in that is, that means they're going to heaven when they die. Now, at the exact same time that was becoming more and more popular in the church, all missionary work collapsed in the church. I don't think that's a coincidence, because if you read the missionary work, the the, the writings of somebody like, let's say, St. Isaac Jogues, you know, the great missionary to the Native Americans, the the great Jesuit missionary to Native Americans, when you read what he wrote, he assumed every single Native American was going to hell. And that's what... Compelled him to want to go to the Americas to preach Christ because he didn't want that to happen. He loved them. He didn't want that to happen. That's why, even though he got his fingers bitten off, he came back. You know, and and you know, being a martyr because he believed very strongly that they were all going to hell. Now, that is not though. The, the thing is, is the actual teaching of the church of, okay, what is that, kind of that level between the catechumen who, um, you know, is on his way to Easter Vigil and gets hit by a truck versus the, you know, guy in Asia who just lives a decent life. You know, where is the, the line of what what qualifies baptism desire and what doesn't? The church hasn't said it's right in one spot. It's kind of been like it's up to God. And so... Traditionally, it's always much closer to the catechumen example. In recent years, it's much closer to the, uh, you know, just any dude who just happens to be nice to his wife is going to heaven. And so it's like, I think, I think if you look at the tradition of the church, I think it's obviously much closer to the um, catechumen example, the person who's actually joined, you know, wants to become, explicitly made a profession that they want to become Catholic. But so I think, for us, the, the more important point of all that is, we don't know, and therefore we should act like Saint Isaac jokes. <laughs> and so, because we don't know where that line is, we can't know somebody who let's say somebody who's not a member, a visible member of the Catholic Church. We don't know what their status is. I mean, the Catechism, even the the, the most modern Catechism, the most recent Catechism, makes it clear when in section of baptism that. Basically, we know somebody who's been baptized sacramentally, we know they can get to heaven. Obviously, they still have to you know, follow Christ, live a holy life, all those things, go to confession if mortal sin, those things. But they, they, we know they can get to, to, to um, heaven because Jesus has promised that they would. He has promised if you're baptized and you follow him, you'll get to heaven. We can hope that those who aren't baptized or aren't visible in the church, we can hope that they will be saved and, you know, hope, uh, the theological virtue that, you know, God in his mercy does want all men to be saved. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell, and so we can hope they'll be saved, but hope, you know, uh, hope isn't, you know, that, that doesn't mean we just are like, well, that's probably going to happen, so I don't need to do anything about it. No, because it's only a hope and not a, 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 a known quantity, our duty is to, is to evangelize those people. So we can't know, like I said, so if somebody dies, for example, and we know they weren't a Catholic, we shouldn't despair that they're definitely going to hell. But at the same time, we shouldn't assume that they went to heaven. We pray for their soul, and we, and we, and we hope that they're saved. And before they die, we, we hopefully get to them so that they, um, you know, we talk to them so that they convert. So that's basically a rundown of this idea of outside the church there's no salvation. Any questions on that specific topic? Yes, ma'am. With so the baptism of blood, are there any concrete examples of saints or apostles that we know were not baptized by water, but they did martyr, were martyred? Are there any- we know that there were, mar- I don't know their names off the top of my head, but there are definitely martyrs in the early church who were not baptized. Because there are stories of, for example, there are stories of the uh, the um, a soldier who is in charge of, of like, martyring a person who converts and then is martyred themselves right afterwards. So they were never baptized by water and that person is then venerated as a saint. And there are stories of catechumens also being collected up when the, 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 the empire did a, a persecution and they collected up the Christians. They rounded them up. They included catechumens. So we know, I, I, I know there, there are names listed, but I don't know them off the top of my head, but definitely there were definitely people who were The great story is the ones where a uh, 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 Christian is martyred and then some of the crowd converts immediately, professes Christ, and then they get martyred as well right then. So, And those, so those people went straight to heaven because they, they gave their entire lives for Christ. Okay, so one, another thing I want to talk about real quick is the structure of the church. And this is the hierarchy of church. Again, remember, we are a you know, the church is a visible body, and so we can see who its leaders are. And so, of course, the, the breakdown of the church is: you have the pope, you have the bishops who are united with them, you have the clergy. So this would be both uh, priests and deacons, and then you have the lay. You have the, uh, um, I'll say consecrated who are lay people, but they've consecrated you know, religious, like nuns and brothers, uh, and then you have the laity. And each one, each person is a full member of the church, but they each have different roles in the church. Because just like anybody, you have a leadership, you have how things are structured, how things are run. And of course, you have the Pope, who is in charge, and that is the Bishop of Rome, the successor of St. Peter. And the Pope, he has what is called, uh, and of course there's He's infallible and things like that, but that's not what we're going to talk about tonight. It's more the the running of the church is what we're talking about tonight. He has full, immediate, and universal jurisdiction. So it's full, immediate, and universal. So it's full in the sense that he exercises it in all aspects of ecclesial life. There's nothing that runs inside the church that he cannot exercise his authority over. If Pope Francis tomorrow said the oratory in Cincinnati, you know, I'm going uh, to shut it down tomorrow, he has 100% authority to do that. And, there's no, and nobody can stop him, nobody can appeal to anybody else. So he has full authority on all aspects. Now one thing to note is he has full authority on all aspects of ecclesial life. But that doesn't include outside of ecclesial life, so politics, economics, or anything like that. He has no more authority than anybody else does. I mean, he, he doesn't have any extra authority in an area of politics, for example. In fact, uh, if you look at Vatican II, it talks about how the laity are the ones who are supposed to be uh, making those type of decisions in, in the world, in politics and economics and, and those aspects. So, but he has full authority in the ecclesial life of the church. Secondly, he is immediate which means he's not bound to any other authority. So for example, there's certain things that Father John Paul can do here, he doesn't need to check with anybody to do it. Other things if he wanted to do, he had to check with the bishop, because this is a parish that the bishop runs, and, so he, and he's, and he, Father John Paul's a little bit, they're a little bit different because they're an oratory, they're not a diocesan priest, but at the same time, because they're practicing their uh, apostolate and their ministry here in, in the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, that means he, has to, he abides by the authority of the Archbishop of Cincinnati in certain things. Um, and a bishop, likewise, has a lot of authority in his diocese, but he doesn't have total and complete control. He has to. Appeal, there's certain things you can appeal to the Pope for. Well, there is no appeal from the Pope. He has immediate authority in, in all things. And then finally, his universal jurisdiction, meaning he has authority over every single member of the Church. So if he just picked somebody at random and said, you're excommunicated that person's excommunicated and they can't do anything about it because he has authority over every single person in the church. that would be abusing his authority, that example I gave, but the point is he does have it. So that's the Pope. So then you have the bishops. Now bishops, of course, are kind of, the, you know, there's archbishops, and there's bishops, you have auxiliary bishops, you have bishops who are cardinals, and really, ultimately, they're all just bishops. An archbishop is simply just a, a, a term for somebody who's a bishop of a bigger city that's been declared an archdiocese. So here in Cincinnati, it's an archdiocese, and it's, when I say it's bigger, it's actually more important, I think it's probably a better term, because of history often. Because for example, Cincinnati isn't as big as Columbus or Cleveland anymore, but it's the archdiocese, and they are not just because we're first, and you know kind of the way it developed. So every bishop, though, is a, is a full bishop. So an auxiliary bishop, as well, is a full bishop. But what they, what's happened is their jurisdiction is, is limited. They basically just serve in a, in a diocese, usually an archdiocese, to assist the bishop, often because the, uh, the diocese has gotten so large over time that they need other bishops for, like, confirmations and things like that. Auxiliary bishops are kind of weird because they're not really... Traditionally, they're not part of how the church has been structured. It's more of a more modern thing that was necessary because these dioceses got so large. to make Catholics now, a cardinal, a cardinal is not like a um, it's not an order in the church like a, a priest or a deacon or a bishop is. And by the way, the pope of course is just a bishop too. He's also more than a bishop, but he is a bishop as well. But His order is as a bishop. So when he's made a pope, when Francis became pope, he was an ordained pope. He was consecrated pope. Because you can only be ordained a deacon or a priest or a a bishop. So a cardinal is somebody who is basically being given, it's it's an honorary title in one sense, in which you are now a personal advisor to the pope. And so traditionally what happened was is that for the longest time, for the first millennium, the, the, the Pope as Bishop of Rome, most of his job was just being Bishop of Rome. I mean, there wasn't like this communications, like somebody who lived in, for example, um, Alexandria, they rarely knew what the Pope was saying, and in fact, they probably didn't know who the Pope was, sometimes they heard it in the, in the mass because they they'd be told that, but they didn't keep track of that. And you, so what the Bishop of Rome did, the Pope, he basically ran Rome, and when a big deal came up, they bring, bring it to him, to, to Saul, but he had his advisors, which were the priests, the other priests of the diocese of Rome, and those are the people who decide who the next pope would be when the bishop of Rome died. The other priests in the diocese would become, would would vote. You know, they would determine. Okay, who should be the next? They usually pick somebody from among themselves to become the next bishop of Rome, who was the pope. And eventually, this name it got to be called a cardinal in the, in, the, in medieval times. It was called, you know, they were called cardinals, and eventually it kind of evolved to the fact where now the Pope picks people from all over the world, but, and their main job is to elect the next Pope when the Pope dies or resigns, but they're also considered like the, the personal advisors of the Pope. They're, one of their jobs is to tell the Pope, okay, here's what I think, and here's how I think we should do things, or something like that. But remember, it's not an order. So that, some bishops are, are cardinals as well. And the clergy, which is basically, I mean, technically I guess you could say a bishop is part of the clergy, but we think of that as deacons and priests. And so, of course, priests are basically, and in deacons, in, 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 in the most essential sense, they are the extension of the bishop. In the early church, the first century or so, you had a bishop in a town, and that was like the only, he was also the priest. Now, when the town got bigger, he'd ordained men to be uh, in fact, at first, you mostly just had bishops and deacons because you had the bishop who was the one priest who celebrated Mass in the town. He had deacons who were basically his helpers. You know, we, see, we hear in Acts, so they would go out and help uh, you know, give p- uh, food to the poor. They would distribute communion sometimes, things like that. And then there was the, the priests were then, when they got so many people, they needed more people to celebrate Mass. And so now we have, of course, more priests than we do bishops, obviously. And so that's, the next, that's another level. And they, of course, are the ones who bring the sacraments to us um, obviously they can't ordain a bishop, so they couldn't do that. But they, could, they can't ordain a priest either, but they can do a lot of that. And then you have the consecrate. Now, the rest, is, they're all, the rest are lay people. So, a, you know, Sister Marie Cecile is a lay person, but she's a consecrated, so she's not really, it's kind of a pseudo-lay person because we wouldn't think of her as a lay person because she's consecrated her life to Christ in a special way. So anybody who's a member of a religious, uh, a religious community and has taken their vows, they're consecrated um, and so that's just a, a special uh, level in the church. I'm trying to remember, at what point, you might know the sister, I'm not sure, at what point, like, postulancy, novitiate, is it when they take their final vows, is that when they're really a member of the consecrate, or is it as soon as they're postulant, they're a member of the consecrate? It's first vows. First vows. The difference between first and final, is that finally you say forever? Okay, so first vows. So that's when you really become a member of the consecrate. There's also, um, there are some uh, women who are consecrated virgins. They're not a member of religious order, they're, they live independently, and they've just, but they've, they, they, they're consecrated virgins, and they, they, uh, a bishop kind of has a ceremony for them. A good friend of mine, she, she lives in Michigan, she's one of these. Um, that was more common in the early church, but uh, it still exists today. And of course, the laity, and that's all the rest of us. And so we're, we're full members of the church. But our duties, we don't have like, specific roles in the church of leadership. You know, we might. You know, there might be people who are theologians or think or work for the church, things like that. But it's not a role that's in like any position that a lay person has in the church can be eliminated. The position can be, it's not like necessary. Whereas you can't eliminate the the, the the role of bishop. It's essential to what the church is. But you know, I was director of the evangelization for a diocese for five years. You don't have to have a director of evangelization to keep the church going. Okay, so. That's, so that's the basic structure of the church, which I think we all kind of know that, but it's good to review it. Um, the last topic I just wanted to bring up was the, because I think we're running out of time, is the indefectibility of the church. And yes, before I run on the board, I am going to cheat and have it here because I probably couldn't spell it up here. So the indefectibility, I'm still going to spell it even if I have a problem. Oh, the ineffectability of the church basically what it means is it's the promise of Christ that the church will not fail that he said you know, thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and what that means is the church will always exist until the end of time until the time when Christ comes back he will lift his church up into heaven it will still exist what we have to remember, though, is there's no promise of how many people will be in that church or what it will look like. Because remember, the church started with just a handful of people. At Pentecost in the upper room, there's just a few people there. And that was the church, and it was universal, it was Catholic, even though there was only you know, 12 men and a few others who made up the church at that point. And so just because Christ promised the church would survive, it doesn't mean at the end of time when the, church, when the final day comes and Christ comes back, there won't just be 12 people left. At that point in the church. And we see this, like, you know, so when, when things go, I, I, I see this, I, I've seen this a lot where when something's going very bad in the church, you know, you get some people who get really upset about it and they kind of freak out and stuff, which, you know, okay, but, you know, hopefully you have peace about it as well that Christ is Lord. But then others are like, oh, it's all okay because, the, you know, Christ has promised the church won't fail. What well, doesn't mean that we won't fail as members of the church and, and fall away and things like that? In fact, we can see whole sections of the church go away. I mean, look at England in the, the 16th century. If you were a Catholic living in England in 1520, and I told you in 40 years or 50 years, whatever, the entire country would no longer be Catholic, and not only that, but you would be persecuting and killing Catholic priests left and right. There's no way you believe me, because... Your, your your king at that time has been called the defender of the faith by the Pope. That was the title given to Henry VIII before he went crazy. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it was a deep... England was one of those deeply Catholic countries in the world. It had a very special attachment to the Pope. It goes back to in the Middle Ages when, like, a king got in trouble and needed help from the Pope, and so they connected it. But it became a real thing where England was was super Catholic. I mean, like we think of like today, we think of like, you know, France, and not that there are any more, but like France has this tradition of being this really Catholic country. Well, England was very Catholic, and yet the entire country was lost to the Church in a, in less than a century. And that doesn't mean that Christ's promise of indefectibility wasn't true. It just meant that in one section of the of the Church that people just, they all fell away for whatever reasons. And so... This is something we can cling to, but we can't make it an excuse to be like, well, things are going to be okay because Christ promised it. No, we, we fight for the truth and, and to keep and to evangelize and things like that, knowing at the end we are going to win, but we're probably going to you know lose a heck of a lot of battles on the way, but we do end up winning the war in the end. So the indefectibility of the church is something that we we should cling to because again, the, the indefectibility of the church is our promise that. This is the ark of salvation. The church is the ark of salvation. That it will not sink. It, it you know, might seem that there's some holes in it, but it's not going to sink. And as long as we stay in the ark of salvation, we stay in the church, you know, we can be saved. Okay, uh, oh, we're getting out of time. Are there any other, any questions about anything I talked about? Yes. You mentioned before, my kitchen just said me the other day, the church, triumphant militant and suffering. Right. The, we pray to the saints to triumphant, right, to pray for us. But right. Because when someone was asking me, what about when we have masses says for those in purgatory, Why right. didn't make it to heaven, they cannot pray, though, for those in purgatory? They can just pray for No, us actually, us the, the saints pray. in heaven can pray for those in purgatory. Okay, so if we yes. make it to purgatory, then they, the saints that we pray for to get out of purgatory can be praying for yeah. Yeah, hopefully, you, we scratch their back, they scratch ours. Exactly. So. I'm not <laughs> yes. Sure. yes, yes, yes. Well, to piggyback on that, my understanding has always been that the church suffering are, per se, helpless. We can pray for right. them, but they cannot pray for us or right. help us in any way. Yes, that's right. Just recently, I've heard from a couple different places that they can actually pray for us, but they can't pray for themselves. Not, what is your understanding no, of that? No, the, the, the souls in purgatory, no, they can't pray, for, they don't pray for us. They're, like you said, they're helpless in a sense. Right. I and mean, they're getting to heaven. Once they're in heaven, obviously they can pray for us. But while they're in purgatory, they're being purged of all their attachments and, 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 and well,
1: disorders things and things like that. In
0: the, in the catechism, I thought, well, maybe that'll clear it up. And it was actually kind of vague. It was kind of. You could interpret yeah. it either way, actually. Yeah, I think it says it in here explicitly. Unfortunately, a lot of language of documents in the church in the past 50 years. The word vague and interpretive any way is all too commonly said, um, but, you know, we won't go there. But it actually has it in here. Um, I believe it actually says it explicitly in the book when it talks about the communion of saints. It mentions the fact that, you know, they don't, they don't pray for us. Uh, or, or, you know... Well, that's understanding, but, yeah. yeah, so... uh does it say in here? It doesn't say it explicitly. It just said, you know, the faithful on earth can come to the aid of the souls in purgatory, and the saints similarly can intercede for the poor, poor souls there. So, yeah, so we're, we should definitely be praying for those in purgatory and asking for the intercession of those in heaven. Okay, speaking of which, let's do that. Uh, okay, in name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom. Your Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Yep. Thank you. Again, I hope you learned something from that lesson, the catechism lesson on the church. Uh, That's it for today's show. Just before I leave, I just want to remind you, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric R. Sammons or my Facebook page, which is Eric Salmons Swimming Upstream. Thanks for listening. Until next time, thanks swimming against the stream.